I guess I wanted to find out like what I'm capable of if I truly invested time and effort in a goal that feels scary and audacious and improbable. Cause I'd never really given myself that freedom before. Like I've never allowed myself to bite off something that didn't seem possible. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game and what it taught them so that we can all learn to level up and have that much more fun as climbers. Now today we're reconnecting with big wall badass, trad crusher, and just all around impressive climber Amity Warm to do a deep dive into the hardest trad route that she's ever taken on, Cobra Crack. Now, you've likely heard of the super classic trad route out in Squamish, which was established by Peter Croft on aid and then was first freed by Sonny Trotter about 15 years ago. It is widely considered one of the hardest crack climbs and trad climbs in the world around 514B, and it has seen less than 20 repeats in that decade and a half. It is a full-on crack climb that throws pretty much everything at the climber. Talking about sketchy stemming, to layback fingers, to a brutal mono move, to an acrobatic overhead heel hook. It is inspiring, it is hard, and that is what compelled Amity to take it on as her toughest project yet. And what makes this combo today here I think so special is that Amity hasn't sent this project. I mean, usually climbing podcasts or videos touch a little bit on the challenge or the process that a climber goes through, but really make the meal out of the send. And this chat today is all about the struggle, the process, and the learnings that have come from not yet sending, which I personally find very relatable if you've been following along with my fall journey as that project is still unfinished. And I think you're gonna find her experience on Cobra from the emotional roller coaster to the tactical learnings will be helpful in your climbing journey, whether you're projecting at your limit in the gym, on boulders, at the sport crag, or on gear. All right, now speaking of trad crushers, you'll hear in this conversation today with Amity that I've been getting some mentorship from our mutual friend, Jordan Cannon. And the last time that I climbed with Jordan was on my project in November, and he told me that I would have sent it by now if I could just take a little bit more weight off my fingers by being more precise and confident with my footwork. And then he gave me some ideas on how to work on that, which I've been doing. And I gotta tell you, I'm really psyched for how I'm feeling now on the wall, just with those little changes that he suggested. And I'm telling you, I spent about 10 minutes with Jordan talking about this, and it has changed the way that I climb for the better. He is a hell of a good climber and mentor, and I'm just so psyched, you guys, to share that you can work with Jordan as your mentor as well, and I'm not talking about 10 minutes here, I'm talking about four months. That's right, starting March 1st, Jordan and Shared Air are going to be holding a four-month program custom-made for a max of just 30 climbers. Climbers who are going to become a community over the course of your time together. And you can choose between two tracks with Jordan, Outdoor Foundations or Trad Climbing. The program includes a masterclass, personal Zoom courses, five in-person clinics in Colorado, a climbing trip outdoors with Jordan, plus a private Slack channel so you can have access to Jordan 24-7. You guys, just the climbing trip with Jordan alone is worth the price of admission here. What a dream experience that's going to be. And just for us strugglers, Jordan and Shared Air are offering a $300 discount on the program. Let's go. Just use code STRUGGLE to snag this deal at sharedair.com. That's S-H-A-Y-R-D-A-I-R.com. It's right there in your show notes. You can hit that to learn more about it. 
Remember, the program is limited to just 30 climbers so that everybody can get meaningful time with Jordan and also build strong community bonds with one another who are in this program so that you can come away a much more skilled, educated, and confident climber. If you're looking for a life-changing experience as a climber, I'm telling you this is it. Jordan is the real deal. And you can learn more over at sharedair.com. Shared Air, where climbing lives. Just a big thanks to all of you who are listening right now, who have left really kind reviews over on Apple and Spotify. Thank you so much. That actually makes a huge difference. So if you have a second, please pop over there and do that if you haven't. And also a shout out to the wonderful patrons and subscribers out there. So many new members over the past couple of months here. Thank you. Thank you so much for supporting me as I'm working really hard to put these shows out. Along with, by the way, more than 40 hours of bonus content that's exclusive to members of the show including a bonus episode available right now where Amity breaks down crack climbing training for beginners, shoe beta, how she trains her fingers as an all-arounder that does a lot of climbing, and improving footwork, something that I think we all know that I need a little bit more help with. More on that a little bit later, but first, let's struggle on Cobra Crack with Amity Warren. Success. You sound great. How are you? It's good to see you. Yeah, you too. How was the Sandy Condies yesterday? Oh my God, it was conditions yesterday. Yeah. Did you throw it down? I mean, I gave it hell. I didn't send, but, you know, it wouldn't be the struggle climbing show if I just went out and sent, you know? <laughs> That's what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about not sending, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you got it. I believe in you. I appreciate it. Now, where are you at right now? Are you still in the valley? No, we came back to Colorado just a couple of days ago. I've got a weird finger injury going on right now, so I had oh, to come back to Colorado cool. to get that checked out. That's right. You were like climbing through it at, at, in the valley, right? Yeah. So I stabbed my finger with a knife right before we went to Yosemite. Oh, <laughs> shit. I was like trying to break apart some frozen stuff and just like stabbed all the way through deep enough to like nick the tendon sheath. I mean, it was, it was like close to half an inch into my finger. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. I was told like, it's not really going to get worse by climbing on it. It's just going to be super painful. So I got through the whole El Nino and like whole Yosemite season. Still not better. Like it's still, it's better. It's way less painful, but it's still kind of pretty puffy and swollen and stiff so moving on to a bit more aggressive treatment at this point oh man gosh your drive <laughs> is so high that you went and did a full season of big wall questing with a painful injured finger it probably didn't help it heal any faster but it was really cool to do the route <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's great. Well, perfect jumping off point for us here at the Struggle Climbing Show because we'll loop back to that. But I think, you know, what's what I'm excited about with this conversation, and I'm grateful that you're willing to sit down and talk about climbing through this lens of struggle through the, the your experience on Cobra Crack is that we'll, you know, we kind of get to, to go through a little bit of the roller coaster of emotions here together and just as I was reviewing my notes for this conversation and some of your 
really thoughtful Instagram posts that you had around your time in Squamish. It, it just was so interesting to me how relatable it is, you know, regardless of the grade that we're working on, the project, the climbing style. I'm taking on the hardest route that I've ever tried right now. And as I'm reading your words on Cobra Crack, which is like, you know, the 514 trad crack climb, you know, I mean, it's just it's world famous, epic, classic climb, something that I'll never, you know, hopefully I'll get to stand at the base of it and look at it one day, but I'll never, you know, pull on. But it was incredibly relatable. It's just a totally different climb, totally different climbers, totally different style. And I think back of when I was trying to break into 511, you know, it's relatable to that as well. So I'm excited yep. in, in the sense here that had you sent the route, this probably would be a different discussion, but it's, you know, kind of a spoiler alert to the listeners here who haven't been following along maybe closely with your Instagram is that you didn't quite pull it together as the season came to a close. And that gives us an opportunity here to look at climbing through a little bit of a different experience, which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, definitely. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's the same experience, no matter what the grade is. It's all trying to push your limits. Yeah. Maybe to, to set the stage for this conversation for listeners who haven't been out to Squamish, who haven't seen some of the films and aren't you know as familiar with Cobra Crack, certainly as you are, could you give us just a little bit of a set and setting for what this climb is? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, like you said, Cobra Crack's like one of the most famous crack climbs on the planet. First freed by Sonny Trotter in 2006. It's had 19 ascents since then. It's not very many. Yeah, it has this plaque at the bottom of the route with everyone's names they sign after they send it. Send it. Yeah, it's on the backside of the Chief, which is the big, huge formation in Squamish. You hike 40-ish minutes of basically like stair stepper to get up to the route. And then you walk up and it's kind of in a bit of an amphitheater, but it's just this eye-catching, draw-dropping line. You look up and you like look up and up because it's so steep above you. It's like 32 meters maybe of mostly steep finger crack. Very inspiring. It really is. I mean, it's just, it's to see it, you know, in photos and you've got some stunning photos up on your Instagram and, and to watch um, some films of, of people climbing on it. It's like the king line there and very hard, as you've said. I mean, it's been 15 years and only it's seen less than 20 cents. It's not for lack of inspiration. It's not like it's some like crazy remote, you know, chossy thing that nobody wants to go do. It's absolutely gorgeous and very hard. And I'm curious, as we'll dive into some of the specifics here in just a minute, but just kind of looking big picture for you as you set your goals and you set your sights, this is the hardest climb, I think, right, that you've taken on. It would have been a first for the grade for you and, and will be when it goes. Why yeah. choose Cobra Crack? Yeah, good question. I really like finger cracks. I've done quite a few hard finger cracks in the recent years, I like to say I'll never have the strongest fingers or whatever, be the strongest climber, but I'm pretty good at pain tolerance. And a lot of hard mm. finger crack climbing is just about pain tolerance. It's just such an inspiring, historic, legendary climb. For those reasons, I also really like Squamish. I haven't spent time there in many years, but 
yeah, I was excited to hang out in Spamish. It's quite a nice place to post up for the summer and have a project. I, I think it was on one of the, the posts that you did kind of reflecting on Cobra Crack where you had said something to the extent of, for, for a very long time, you didn't think that climb would even be possible. Like it wasn't even kind of within the realm of what you thought you might be able to do. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. I certainly can relate to that right now on the thing that I'm trying. But at right. some point in time, that starts to kind of eke into the mind a little bit. And you're like, well, what about that? What about this thing? And I'm curious kind of when did that happen? Yeah, kind of my mindset going into the season was seeing what would happen if I allowed myself to chase a really big objective, to try a route that seemed completely out of reach at first. I guess I wanted to find out what I'm capable of if I truly invested time and effort in a goal that feels scary and audacious and improbable. Because I'd never really given myself that freedom before. Like I've never allowed myself to bite off something that didn't seem possible. So like you said, it's the first of the grade that I've tried, uh, whatever 14B is what it generally gets called. So yeah, not only was it like the hardest grade that I've tried, but it's also in a style that really wasn't my strong suit. Like you think, oh, it's a hard finger crack, like they're all kind of the same. But Cobra Crack felt particularly challenging in that it's really steep, really burly, powerful climbing kind of revolves around bicep lockoffs and how it kind of feels like how many one-arm pull-ups you can do, which I can't do any. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, the style itself didn't really come naturally to me, which was cool in a way because I really had to work on my weaknesses. Like in order to see progress, I really had to, yeah, focus on my weaknesses and improve them, which is inspiring and motivating and I appreciate something that forces me to grow and improve. On the other hand, it maybe wasn't the best choice for a first of the grade <laughs> if I was only looking for like ascend and being successful. Right. But you weren't, which I find incredibly admirable. And, and that's part of the climbing journey. We're climbing to expand ourselves as humans, as people to sometimes have fun, to sometimes test our limits. And so not always is the low hanging fruit you know, the one to go with, right? And I'm on my own kind of journey right now to break into a new grade, there were certainly easier routes I think I could have chosen that would have su suited my style, but I wanted to push myself and grow and test those limits. And, and part of the reason why I find this journey that you're on to be so relatable, because I think that others choose that. Sometimes I do pick the easiest route, <laughs> but not always. And I typically learn more about myself when I don't. So when it came to this kind of idea that you're going to be pushing yourself outside of the limits that you would normally be comfortable with, whether it's the amount of time you're going to spend on the project or the not knowing whether it would go or just the style and the movement. What did you do to prepare yourself prior to getting on the climb, if anything? Yeah, I think that's a super interesting question to dive into. Yeah, like you said, before now, the longest project I've had was like eight or nine days. So there are a lot of mental and physical struggles that we can dive into with trying Cobra and just that process of learning how to mega proj something. Yeah, physically, I feel like I didn't train specifically for it and came in vastly unprepared. We'd spent the previous month in Yosemite where standing on tiny feet is more the focus than 
bicep power and lockoffs. I'd also never climbed on Cobra before, so I really didn't know exactly what to expect. I mean, I'd never seen it. I'd never climbed on it. I really, other than watching some videos of people sending it, you like don't really know what to expect. So physically, right. I don't actually think I was very well prepared at all. Kind of the saying where you can spend like 30 days on the project or you can spend 25 days in the gym and five days on the project. Felt like that really applied here where it felt like I was really building fitness on the route as I was trying it. And I think that was definitely like one of the biggest things I learned was part of it was just like learning exactly what the route was going to demand and the, the kind of fitness that I would need to have for it so that I can come in more prepared the next time I try it. Yeah, I mean, I went from not being able to do all the moves for the first handful of sessions to one hanging the route by the end of the season, which is exciting, like knowing that I came fairly close to doing it really without a lot of preparation on the front end. If I were to come in much more prepared another year, it feels like it's possible, which is exciting. That's a ton of progress that you made training on the route. You wrote something about that process that really stuck out to me. And so I'll, I'll quote it here. You said, Cobra is never going to get easier or come down to meet my level. I have to rise up and improve myself to meet the demands of this legendary route. And I'm curious when you essentially came to that realization and what you think now, having learned so much after putting a season on it, that you will need to focus on to rise to meet Cobra where it's at. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's the cool thing about any project for anyone in climbing is that the, cl the project itself is static. The project itself doesn't change. It's never going to come down to our level. Like We are the ones that have to adapt and change and improve and grow in our physical and mental approach or whatever it is in order to meet that challenge. And I think that's what's cool about climbing goals. Like It forces that drive for improvement. Yeah, in terms of like going forward, I think it's, this is the first climb I really will have to train specifically for. Prior to now, I've kind of always been able to walk up to a route or an objective with whatever current level of strength and fitness I have and been able to skate by on that. I mean, that, state, that fitness is like relatively high throughout the year. It's not like I'm walking up just like totally out of shape, but I've always been able to learn the route and get by with whatever fitness that I have as I like work the route, I've never had to think really seriously about training and peaking and tapering and kind of that whole cycle. Yeah, I think Cobra will be interesting kind of looking ahead at these going into the future of whenever I go to try it again, of actually having to focus specifically on training for it. And I think I learned over the course of the summer, I learned a lot about how much load my body can handle. I can sustain a fairly high load in terms of volume and intensity. But I also need to build in this period of tapering and performing where I'm resting more and not trying to train while also trying to red point. I think I went into the season feeling so behind on my power endurance fitness for the intensity of Cobra that I was trying to play catch up the whole season. So I was trying to climb on the route and train at the gym and climb other stuff because I was getting bored and, you know, whatever. So I think, yeah, next year, whenever I go back to it, I would 
want to go in so much more physically prepared that I can focus on red pointing sooner versus trying to build fitness and learn the route and send it and like all the things at the same time. Yeah. When you're faced with a limit project like that, I think like the psych is high and you want to get out on it like a ton and a ton. And then when you go back, there's a little bit more of a relationship and a maturity with it where you can maybe pull back the reins a little bit. Although you've had success up to this point in doing that. And I've had conversations with other climbers. Chris Sharma comes to mind where it's like, you know, he said he was falling on the last move of Sleeping Lion for weeks. And so he was going out and doing a 515C three times a day, three times a week for weeks, and then finally, you know, did it. And so, you know, kind of to each their own, if if you have the ability to continue to train on the route, but it sounds like for you, there will be some of that focused training. And do you have a sense for what that might be? Cobra is a weird one because it's not like a like crimpy face climb where you can put a bunch of burns in on. It's like you maybe get a couple of two burns a day, maybe twice a week. And other than like mm. more than that, you're just like losing a ton of skin. And I was getting like too fatigued in that high end bicep power doing more than that. But yeah, sure. mostly the skin game is super weird with the finger cracks. So yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one where it's I, you don't actually get as much time on it per week as you would necessarily want to have. So you do have to have some sort of like other supplemental climbing or training or other things going on at the same time. But yeah, in terms of training, definitely. Uh, so Nat Bailey, who sent it like right at the beginning of this past summer, had worked it a couple seasons prior to that. And his training plan over the winter was basically just an insane amount of weighted pull-ups. And he came in and totally overpowered the route this year, just like hiked it. Wow. So yeah, the the Nat Bailey winter training plan involves lots of weighted pull-ups and one-arm lock-offs because you're like, as you're climbing it, your feet are in the crack, but it's so steep and it's such a thin crack that you're not getting that much out of your feet. Most of it is just coming from this ability to like lock off on finger locks. So you're basically finger lock campusing a finger crack. <laughs> Of for kind 30 of, yeah. meters. I mean, it sounds heinous, but I guess maybe the good news is, is that for weighted pull-ups and rows and all these things that you're talking about, you don't really need your finger all that much. So you, you should be all right this year training that way. Yeah, I should be able to train even with my stabbed finger. <laughs> right. Well, can we geek out for a second over a little bit of the movement of the climb, maybe dive into the tactics of, of the route for a second here, because you wrote a bit about how certain beta wasn't working for you just with the way your fingers were fitting into certain sections and this kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, I guess kind of a route breakdown. It starts with probably 20 feet of 11 plus stemming, actually. It's kind of like big hmm. open flare. And then love that. the crack gets... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if only that was the crux. <laughs> the crack gets really thin. You're placing like 0.2s and it's less steep. It's like pretty techy for I don't, like 15, 20 feet maybe. And then you get to the start of the steepness where it kicks back to like probably 30 degrees. You kind of have a good flake on the side of the crack that you're holding onto where you place a piece. And then it's like a 513 move right there. And then you have, yeah, a few good finger locks in the steepness and you get up to where you place your last piece and then you do the classic mono undercling move. Yeah, really 
what was the biggest struggle for me. And that was particularly frustrating because it felt so finicky. Like it felt like a morpho struggle for me Mm. versus like a physical ability. I have really big knuckles, just partly genetic and partly from climbing a lot of cracks. But my knuckle was like too big to fit easily into that mono lock, which is probably like the best or relatively easiest beta. So I just spent a ton of extra energy trying to wiggle that finger in just so Mm -hmm. I could do the next move. And that extra energy spent trying to get my finger in just built up into fatigue over the course of the route, over the course of the season. I played with a few other beta options, but that kind of traditional mono beta was definitely, I mean, it's the only one that I ever actually did the sequence with. So I knew it worked. It was just really low percentage, which again is hard when you're only getting a couple goes a couple times a week and low enough percentage that is didn't have the margin for anything else to go wrong, right? Like a foot slip or not sticking another jam just right or bad conditions or what have you. Like I didn't have the margin for anything else to go wrong. I think mentally that was a big struggle because I've always been able to just try harder or dig a little deeper and get the route done. Whereas that wasn't really the case with Cobra. It felt like there was this really morpho struggle where it was just a matter of my body not fitting the good or the like typical beta. So yeah, that was, I think one of the biggest struggles was just not being able to feeling like I had less control of not just being able to try harder. Yeah. I think that's something again, that can be quite relatable to all climbers on, on all different styles, all different grades. I remember speaking with Lynn Hill on this show about kind of that very thing where like just certain climbs, she just whether she was, it was too short and, or there just weren't the intermediates or the, or kind of the foot chips that she would typically pull off of, or, you know, it just wasn't, it didn't sit with her. And sometimes she would say, well, if I'm, if I'm inspired, I'm going to find a way, you know, and that's like on the changing corners and that kind of thing where she just was inspired. And so she, she found a way and on other climbs, she said, well, you know, if I'm not that inspired, I'm just going to move on. So I'm assuming with Cobra Crack, you're inspired enough, obviously, to continue to go at it. It is the mega classic, but that's a crux, right? If you're not able to do it, maybe the way that that others would typically pull that sequence, what did you learn? I mean, when you come back to it, how will you tackle that crux? I would come in with a bit more open mind at the beginning of the season in terms of exploring other beta options. Like by the time I'd built the fitness and was able to do that move that sequence last season it felt like a bit too late to change betas you know it was like okay i know this works i should just keep trying it and hopefully one of these days everything aligns but i think i would definitely spend some more time exploring other beta options like it has been done other ways but i also think just having higher fitness and higher strength gives you that much more margin to be able to to be able to hold that lock off and wiggle that finger in, just like having more strength going in gives you the margin to deal with that. Whereas that was like maxing me out previously. Yeah, that makes sense. Everything feels easier when you're a little bit stronger, but coming yeah. in with that open mind and it, it is for us all to get a little bit of tunnel vision when we feel like we found our beta or we see a hundred YouTube videos of a sequence going one way, we just say, well, that's the way. And then sometimes you have to really 
hit rock bottom and then you can find something that works a little bit better for you. So you've got both options there. You come back strong, but also explore other opportunities in, in that sequence. And yeah. do you have a sense for how many days or how many goes you put on it total? Yeah, I spent like just over 30 days on it, which is crazy. Like that's <laughs> so it feels like so much time. Yeah, I mean, if you're saying it was like eight or nine days was the most days that you'd put in on something. And I'm interested in the mental game, kind of the emotional and mental space that you were in throughout this journey, when I'm sure it wasn't perfectly linear progress from day one to day 30. There were probably, you know, some backsliding and two steps forward and four steps back and this kind of thing. Yeah, lots of ups and downs. Right. I think initially I, I dealt with that fairly well because again I was just coming in with the mindset of this feels beyond me but I'm going to see what happens if I really apply myself to it and then kind of as time progresses and you know you're there for months and months or whatever those days where things go well are like super positive and you feel psyched and good and you can't wait to get back on it but there's plenty of days when yeah it feels like you're sliding backwards or you're just beating your head against the wall and not making improvements and still doesn't feel like it's going to go. And yeah, that's hard for me. I've never really had to deal with that to that extent before. I think I actually did a pretty good job managing expectations and managing psych and being willing to just stick with it regardless. I think one of the biggest struggles for me that's kind of hard to grapple with when looking at a project of this magnitude is like the sunk cost of spending so many days on a single pitch of climbing. If you account for the 30 plus days that I was at the route, plus all the days I was resting specifically for the route, that's a lot of time. And you, it's easy to start thinking about like, how many other things could I have sent during the time that maybe suited me better stylistically? Sure. Yeah, I think that's like one of the biggest things that I struggle with is that like, sunk cost. If I do this, all that time is worth it. If I don't do it, what else could I have done? <laughs> yeah, I think that's very relatable. Obviously, whether we send or don't send, it's worth it if we believe that it's worth it. But it can get dark, you know, in in those middle days or before we have the a little bit of time. You know, time allows for some more thoughtful perspective and these kinds of things. I think, yeah, like physically in terms of ups and downs, there is a lot of progress probably through two thirds of the summer. And I got to this point, yeah, where I was like high pointing or one hanging, maybe even like three quarters of the way through. And then after that, I think I just built up like enough fatigue on the specific moves, like bicep power fatigue over the course of the season that those last few weeks or maybe the last like week or two weeks really started to go downhill in terms of performance where I was still like mentally in it, like mentally, I still wanted it just as much, but physically as it had been a long season and I just like body needed some time away from those specific moves, I think. Is there an instance, a moment or a day where you feel like it was kind of like the bleakest? Ooh, <laughs> maybe the last day on the route for the season, actually, which is kind of a hard note to walk away on. I put so much time and effort and thought and yeah, energy and sweat and blood into this route. And I want it more than ever. You know, I want to see it through. I want to put it together more than ever. And body's just not cooperating there right at the end. 
And yeah, then to walk away on that note, like knowing you're at that point when you're walking away, it's like easy to feel like you failed. Obviously, there's more to it than just sending or not sending. But when you're walking down the hill at that like last day of the season, it's easy to be like, I spent all this time and I failed, you know? Yeah, for sure. But it's hard, especially if somebody is driven as driven as yourself, where you want the thing. The thing is meaningful. And that's what, you know, fuels us in taking on limit projects. And because this was essentially a totally new experience for you, taking on something you've invested as much time and effort and energy and blood, sweat and tears into compared to the other very hard things you've done, but you've done relatively quickly by comparison. Did you have to reframe what success looked like? Yeah, definitely. And kind of going into it, one of my objectives was to, yeah, remember those process goals and celebrate the small wins of linking a section or doing a move for the first time or whatever, one hanging it or two hanging it or, you know, kind of celebrating all those small wins along the way. I tried to be fairly intentional about that, but I really like to see things through. I don't like to lose unfinished business. And I think, you know, that drive has gotten me where I am in climbing and in life. And it's, yeah, it doesn't feel good to leave things. So how motivated are you to get back over there when the conditions return then? (laughs) I'm pretty motivated. It's like, in some ways it's frustrating and it'd be a lot easier to walk away and say, look, this climb doesn't suit me. My finger doesn't fit the good beta. I, it's not my style. It'd be like a lot easier to do that and walk away from it. But I don't know, that's just not who I am. Like what you're saying about Lynn Hill, like if she's inspired, she'll find a way. And I think for me, part of it is that I'm inspired, inspired to make it happen. But I also think part of it is just like, it doesn't sit well with me to leave something unfinished, particularly that I've spent that much time and effort on. So definitely motivated to get back. Sick. Yeah. Well, I'm psyched and motivated just by proxy here. So I want to I want to keep geeking out a little bit more about kind of the tactics and some of the beta that you ended up using that you found to be working. I want to explore specifically footwork and shoes for a second here. Yeah, super important. There were like there was one day in particular when I'd been trying this one combo of shoes and switched them, like switched to a different shoe and did the move right away like three times in a row like the crux move for me so on my right foot i wanted a really stiff edging shoe uh, partly for that kind of techie bit down low but then most importantly for the stand up into the mono move you're on like a little tiny right foot chip and i have to be able to drive so much power through that right toe to like stand up and into the mono so yeah the really stiff edging shoe i was wearing a old school boo stick from Scarpa. And I mean, I have like the stiffest shoe you can get pretty much. And then on my left foot, I wanted a really soft shoe that would kind of mold into the cracks. It's mostly like a 0.4 crack. So it's not very big and you want a really thin profile on that pinky toe side, as well as a pretty soft rubber that'll kind of like smush into the crack. So I was wearing a Scarpa, like an oversized Scarpa Drago on the left foot. And that allowed me to get the most rubber into the crack on the left and the most drive out of my toe on the right foot. And that was the combo that worked. So you're saying when you switched to that combo, you were able to stick the move consistently. Yeah. 
All right, y'all, just a little breather here to reflect on what Amity just shared, because I love geeking out over gear tactics, and it's just so cool to hear about her dialing in those two different Scarpa shoes to go from falling consistently to consistently sticking that critical crux sequence. I love it. No doubt you have felt the difference in the gym or on a route when your shoe game is on point, just like I have. And just like Amity, I am sponsored by Scarpa, which delights me since I've been climbing in Scarpas for a decade, and I just find them to be the best dang shoes in the game. I am really feeling the difference right now on my outdoor project as my instincts are able to toe into these tiny overhung little pockets, but I'm also seeing the difference on the moonboard and at the gym where I'm cutting my feet far less often, which is just a huge energy saver. So look, if you're in the market for new shoes, I don't need to sell you on these. I encourage you to just try a pair of Scarpas. They've been sustainably making the best climbing shoes since 1938. I love them. I trust them. As do pros from Amity Warm, of course, but also Nina Williams, uh, Sean Rabatou, Maddie Hong, so many others. Give them a go. I think you're going to see the difference on route and let me know when you do. You can shop the whole collection over at scarpa.com. Scarpa, no place too far. And now speaking of my favorite shoes, ah, oh God, I love a good segue. Don't you guys just love a good segue? Okay, let me get back to it. Speaking of my favorite shoes, guys, I went hard on my favorite pair of Instincts all year, and they're pretty close now to needing some new rubber. And rather than just toss them out and get a new pair, which always feels mean since we've been through so much together, when I have shoes that fit like a glove, I want to give them some new life with a resole. The key, of course, with that, though, is to be sure that the resole is pro. There's nothing more annoying or frustrating than sending your favorite pair of shoes away for some new rubber, only to have the job come back as an amateur mess, which is why I am really psyched to be partnering up with Rodeo Resole. Now, I first learned about Rodeo Resole when Dustin, the owner, was a guest on Enormocast. The dude's story is amazing. It's fantastic. I recommend you listen to that full Enormocast episode. But the point of this ad here is to tell you about the stellar work that Dustin does as a resoler. He's certified by Scarpa, La Sportiva, and Unparallel, which means this dude's a wizard at giving your favorite broken-in shoes a fresh new edge and getting them performing like new, but without the pain of breaking them in all over again. I love it. Look, with Dustin, you get consistent pro work every single time because he's the guy doing the work. You're not just shipping your shoes off to some big warehouse where they disappear for a while. Plus, it is a great way to save money and reduce your environmental impact, two things that make me very, very happy. So if you've got a comfy pair of shoes out there that are in need of some fresh rubber, hit up Dustin over at RodeoResole.com or shoot him a message on IG at Rodeo underscore Resole. Those links are in your show notes here, and he will personally take awesome care of you. All right, let's get back to this chat with Amity. It's always blows my mind how critical, especially on granite, like dialing in the right rubber is and the right stiffness and these kinds of things so then obviously you're not changing your shoes on route so you pull off onto the route with that combo knowing that you're going to need that for when it's you know most critical in that crux sequence yeah. but then does it present any challenges in other sequences when you've got now two wildly different shoes on it didn't make too much of a difference that right foot edge was actually pretty nice in the dihedral because the right feet that you were on were a bit more edgy versus the left feet were a bit more smeary. So that soft shoe was fine. The crazy beta, I didn't finish breaking down the route, I guess, is after that mono move, you do a huge pull up to a pretty good hold at the lip. And that section's probably like 40 degrees overhung. It's so like moonboard. Oh, wow. Um, That's steep. Yeah, the like mono and then pulling up to the lip. 
And from there, you've probably seen pictures or video of people doing the heel like over their head beta. So you get that good yeah. hold and you do this crazy like heel hook over your head to swing out to a hold out left. I loved that boulder problem. Like if that was a boulder on the ground, it would be like fully five star top 100. Like it's such a cool boulder problem. The movement is wild. Yeah. I guess I heard people break down the route as like being like a V8 into a V9 into a V5, which is probably about right. But for me, that's really hard. <laughs> wow. I could do none of those boulders on that route. And you've got a great photo too on your Instagram of you kind of in that move with that like heel like straight up and you are fully like splayed out. I mean, it's just wild. It's wild movement like after going like, through all that you've gone through. That move suited me really well because of my flexibility. Most people have to run their feet up to get the high heel and I could just split and go get my heel up. So I liked that move a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's great because I, I was intending to ask you about this a little bit later, but it's a perfect opportunity now to ask uh, about that flexibility and that mobility because it, when you're climbing slabs and you're doing high steps and you're throwing high heel hooks and these kinds of things, it really allows you to take a lot of weight off the hands and the fingers and uh, rest better and, and so many things that I don't tend to do very well. I've been trying to, you know, work on my hip mobility and these kinds of things. Is this something that you consistently work on or have you naturally just been kind of hypermobile in that way? I've always been pretty flexible. Like even through my years as a gymnast, I was always on the high end of flexibility. So that right. bit comes naturally to me, whereas the like bicep power doesn't come as naturally. What else do you think you're going to work on? I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about nutrition here, since this is your wheelhouse. And I'm curious if there was anything that you learned there with regard to just fueling for, you know, peak energy when you were going for your sends or for long days out there, certainly for recovery after you're trying so hard. What did that nutrition game look like? Cover was an interesting one because it is after, late afternoon shade, which... Partly is a struggle for me to wait that long because I'm not a very patient person. So it's hard to right. wait until late afternoon to go climb on it. But in terms of nutrition, that was interesting. So you want to eat well throughout the day to be fueled for that. But at the same time, you don't want to be like stuffed once you're up there and trying to climb 40 degree overhanging crack. So it's a bit weird to time this consistent fueling throughout the day, but not being like overly full by the time you get there. I don't know. That's always like a weird one for me when I'm climbing late in the evening or something. But yeah, definitely recovery was huge in terms of making sure I was fueling enough. Yeah, quality carbs and protein and getting really good nutrition before and after climbing days on the route or on training days. Um, because it, it did feel like I was trying to train and red point and like I had a huge expenditure a huge load of training or exercise or whatever so making sure i was keeping up with fueling demands was important but i think it's also easy when you're projecting something like that and it's not coming together it's easy to start to blame all these different things of, okay like do i need to lose weight do i need to do this do I, you know what are the things that are gonna make this come together i don't know i say this to a lot of people want that easy way out of losing five pounds will make this feel easier or you just want something to fix how hard this route feels. But totally. I, yeah, I think trying to not fall into that and remembering that I'm 
expending a huge amount of energy climbing on this route and other routes and everything and making sure you're keeping up with fueling so that you have that high-end power. And it's really, really common to see that micro underfueling where you're like just not quite keeping up with energy demands where you're like, oh, I'm eating healthy. You know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And really, you're just not quite keeping up with energy demands. And you start to get this accumulation of what we call micro under recovery, where you're just losing that highest band of power or that top tier of strength. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, kind of like the, that micro under fueling and like the essentially the slow build of fatigue or just not being able to reach one's potential. Uh, because I'm kind of in that zone right now, I think, if I were to be honest with myself, because I coming into the season and I'm not a performance athlete, I am nowhere near like a dangerously low, you know, BMI or any of this stuff, right? I'm a dad in his 40s and I love cookies and beer, but I wanted to cut a little bit of weight coming into like trying my hardest project in a healthy way. And I did. I lost like, I don't know, six pounds, I think, over the course of two months and was still keeping protein up and all of these things. But I've now been in quote unquote performance season for like six right. weeks. And it's only just now starting to get good temperatures and all this stuff. And right. I'm still trying to kind of be pretty thoughtful about, oh, let's just have that Greek yogurt instead of that bagel and these kinds of things. And I'm wondering if am I doing myself a disservice to try to keep that five pounds off? And would it be better to maybe add a pound or two, but just be like piping fueled and energized and all that when I get out there? And, and how should I think about that? Yeah, I think a good way to approach it is not trying to burn the candle at both ends. So a lot of times I see people you get super motivated, right? And you're trying to train or you're trying to perform and make these adaptations or these have like really high performance that's one end and at the same time you're super psyched and motivated so you're really watching your diet and you're only having greek yogurt instead of greek yogurt and a bagel or whatever it is but you're essentially burning the candle at both ends and you're using energy performing but you're also not giving enough energy back in the other side so your energy meter if you want to think of it is like going this way instead of staying consistent. So yeah, I think that is a helpful way to think of it. If you're in a training or a performance phase, you're not also trying to cut weight or lose weight or whatever it is. Like you're maintaining, if not like slightly overfueling. Your body's really good at adapting up and down. And if you're putting in this anabolic stimulus, just training or performing or whatever it is, like an anabolic stimulus is something that is building up like you're trying to make training adaptations or build muscle or whatever it is that's an anabolic stimulus versus dieting or calorie restriction is a catabolic stimulus where it's breaking down muscle and tissue and everything so you don't want to be having this anabolic stimulus and a catabolic stimulus at the same time because you're you're not doing anything then like you're just kind of leveling out but yeah i, re I really try to discourage athletes who are in a training or a performance phase from also restricting calories at the same time. That performance phase is when we want to have your energy stores completely topped up. Every day you go out there, you want to have full energy, not be like, oh, I'm like, you know, I think I'm a little bit hungry. I haven't really eaten enough this week or whatever. Right. So yeah, I would, yeah. 
And yeah, I think it's easy to be like, oh, I'm just getting tired from the season or from trying this route a bunch. But maybe there is this, you know, 5%, 10% margin of like just this micro under recovery or under fueling where you haven't really talked up those energy stores enough and not just slowly accumulating. Well, I really appreciate that expert perspective from you. And um, I think it's coming at the right time. I'm so psyched. I'm going to, as soon as this is done, I'm going to go have a bagel with peanut butter on it. I've been <laughs> looking <laughs> yeah. forward to this damn bagel with peanut butter. Uh, There's this gap between like your energy or your weight stable in here. And a lot of times I see climbers try to think about it as what's the minimum amount I can get away with eating and still mm -hmm. function or survive versus what's the maximum amount that I can get away with and stay weight stable, but have as much energy as possible where I'm able to make these training adaptations or perform well or do an extra red point go every day that I'm out. So I think, yeah, I think really shifting that perspective from What's the minimum amount I can get away with to what's the maximum amount I can be fueling myself with? Yeah, I love that. Oh, man, that's great. Well, you saw I, I was dipping protein bars in Cool Whip recently. So I'm not, uh, it's not that I'm only eating handfuls of spinach, but I really like that perspective. That, that perspective shift right there that you just touched on is a really healthy way, I think, to look at it. Like, what's the essentially the maximum I can get away with to fuel myself as I'm trying to perform here? I'm going to play around with that. I'll report back, but let's get back to you. That's the the name of the game here is focusing on you and especially Cobra Crack here. Um, but I also want in, in a handful of minutes here to shift towards this season in the Valley that you had, which was fantastic. So it's really talk about a whipsaw of emotions. You packed up, you said the kind of the darkest day was that last day, hiking down the hill, walking away from Cobra Crack, and then you immediately, I think, right, headed to Yosemite and had some big objectives there. So tell me a little bit about that transition. How did you kind of compartmentalize or, you know, essentially wrap up in a sense a season where you didn't do the thing, which is a first for you, and then somehow get your head and your heart and your body in a place to go try really freaking hard on new things? Yeah, I had a 10-day transition period in there from leaving Squamish to before going to Yosemite. I was in Vegas, um, mostly supporting a really good friend on a big project of his up on Rainbow Wall. And then a couple of days of just like fun climbing. That was a really nice transition period of just like taking the focus away from myself and my project and mostly just supporting a good friend on his project. I like that. Part of what helps me not get burned out or have these like post project blues or whatever is that a singular project to me isn't all consuming. Like I always have something else that I'm looking forward to, another goal that I'm excited about or yeah, another project on the radar or whatever it is. It's like, I, I mean, people ask me that a lot. Oh, you like sent this big project. Like, do you have the blues now? Or, you know, it's no. Yeah, it was cool. I'm psyched that I did it. And it was a big deal in the moment. But five minutes later, I'm excited for the next yeah. one. <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty easy for me to keep looking forward, I guess. And the motivation of not sending and of having this objective failure on Cobra, I think is just more motivation to reevaluate my approach to a hard project and yeah I, don't know, I guess take that like as fuel for the fire versus this beat down discouragement 
I think it's great to be psyched on a lot of things because, yeah, it, it allows us to hedge our bets in a certain way, but also whether it's the send or the no send, there's always got to be something next. Otherwise, you're just like aimless. So it's nice to have that that long whiteboard or sticky note list in, in the van of things that you're psyched on. And, and many of the climbers that I've had on the show here do have that. I was I was just in Jordan Cannon's van and he's got this long list of things that he's pumped on and, you know, some things he does and some things he doesn't. And but it's always there. And you had some pretty bold objectives in the valley there, which could probably be its own episode. But we've talked a lot about struggle and the learnings that have come from Cobra Crack. I know you're going to um, uh, get your training dialed in and, and go smash that thing. And it'll be fun to follow along and maybe do a little follow-up episode when you're back in Squamish. But uh, I think it's nice to end here on some exciting things that you just uh, have ticked off here and accomplished in the valley. Yeah, so I kind of had two big objectives going into the Yosemite season this year. And the first of those was El Nino, which is a 25-pitch 13C up the right side of El Cap. And this is the hardest El Cap route I've tried thus far. There's six pitches of 513 and seven pitches of loose, kind of scary 512. So it definitely Mm -hmm. felt like a step up in terms of intensity and difficulty and commitment from any of the other routes I've done on El Cap. I got to team up with Brent Bargon, who's a good friend and awesome climbing partner. We've done a bunch of climbing together and we've been excited for El Nino. We'd wanted to try it last spring. There's, it was so snowy in the valley last spring that El Cap like never really dried out for the spring season. Right. So we pushed it to the fall and yeah, I think everything about it went really as well as it could have aside from my finger injury we had chris alstrand up there he actually came up the entire route with us to make a film about just kind of documenting this process of climbing a big wall ground up and how that goes and yeah it was an awesome team everything went really smoothly there's like just the right amount of drama and all the crux pitches where it's like brent usually sends first and then we need to move on. Like we need to keep moving up the wall and I have one more go and I have to send and somehow pull it together. So there's like yes. just the right amount of drama. <laughs> we had one big storm on the wall, like the third night that we were up there. And that impacted us later down the road because this last 513 pitch is seasonally wet in the spring. We thought it was going to be dry in the fall. But because of this big storm, that last 513 pitch was still completely soaked. So one last Um, little bit of drama at the top of the route. It was like, I mean, we spent, this was like day eight up there. And there's three soaking wet holds between us and like five, nine to the summit. But we managed to get it done with some wool socks and tinfoil stuffed in the crack. We managed to get it done. So... Yeah, that was an awesome Mega. experience. It's always both partners are able to send the route. and That's amazing. I mean, congratulations. It was really cool to follow along. You were posting some great stuff along the way. And yeah, yeah, to go ground up on your hardest route on El Cap and to deal with some fun drama along the way. I'm psyched to see the film. <laughs> congratulations. That's such a cool ascent. And you had one other big one while, while you were out there. Yeah, I wanted to do Book of Hate, which is the Yosemite test piece stem corner it's this 13d 45 meter route really wild feature it's this overarching 
dihedral. But yeah, I don't know. I've been kind of on a stem corner kick for the last six months or so. So yeah, I wanted to try and do this Yosemite stem corner test piece and managed to put that together one of our last couple of days out there. Um, yeah, really incredible route. So sick. Psyched on that one. Oh man, two totally different objectives in the valley. I also yeah. saw you were doing some bouldering there as well. So you really did it all. <laughs> That's great. A little bit. Yeah. Well, I'm so psyched for just all that you have going on. And I'm grateful that you've been able to share the process and the struggle and the breakthroughs and the learnings from Cobra Crack. Again, I, I think that kind of the, the word of the day here is relatability because people who are listening, uh, regardless of what we climb, whether it's gym routes or boulders or big walls, we go through this process just as you did, where there's doubt and there's excitement and there's breakthroughs and there's setbacks. And to have you share that journey and to be as psyched as you are to get back and continue on it, I find really motivating and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Thanks. Yeah. I think my like mantra throughout the whole process was to just keep showing up, keep showing up, keep putting the work in, keep believing that it's possible one day. And I think one of the positives of the whole Cobra experience was having a really awesome partner that was also projecting it at the same time. And we spent a ton of days up there together. And what I kept reminding both of us that we only needed everything to go right one time, right? Like you only need the stars to align one time to put it together. But it's our responsibility to keep showing up and giving ourselves every opportunity for that to happen. Oh man, I'm so psyched for next season and good luck with all the one-arm pull-ups between now and then. <laughs> I'll work on it. But keep us posted, all right? Yeah, definitely. And that wraps things up there with Amity Warm. I really hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the Cobra Crack struggle with Amity. I just got so much out of it personally. And honestly, this is kind of like the whole idea behind me starting this podcast. We all experience struggles in our climbing, whatever level we're at. And that's basically what makes it so dang rewarding when we do ultimately send. You know, struggle isn't a bad thing. It's, it's a necessary and oftentimes really fulfilling part of the process. And I found what Amity shared today to be really relatable and pretty damn inspiring, even though the send hasn't come. In fact, because the send hasn't come. And also just a mind-blowing side note here, you guys. You know how at the top of this interview, uh, Amity said that she hurt her finger while chopping into some frozen food? Well, it turns out she like totally ruptured her pulley and she didn't know that she did it. So when she went to the valley and she sent that 25 pitch 13C on L cap and that heinous 13D stemming dihedral, she did both of those with a ruptured pulley. What? She has got some grit, y'all. It's pretty rad what we can do when we get psyched. So there's some little extra psych on top of the psych because when I talked to her for this interview, she wasn't aware of the extent of the injury. She only found it out after the fact. And speaking of getting psyched, you guys, if you wanna hear more from Amity, I just released a bonus episode where she answers patron questions covering a variety of topics. I'm talking about how beginners can train for cracks, how to get our toes used to the discomfort of camming into crack climbs, something that I really actually struggle with when I go back to trying some crack climbing, how she trains her fingers, or more accurately, how she's trying to train her fingers, 
tips on footwork and more. You can listen to that right now. That bonus episode is available at zero cost, actually, with a free trial over at patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show. Or if you're an iPhone person, it's right there in your Apple podcast app as a free trial as well. Plus, you're going to score yourself instant access to more than 40 hours of other bonus content from the biggest names in the sport. And also pretty cool. If you sign up right now, you guys, as a paying member or as a free trial member, it doesn't matter. You're going to be entered to win a year's supply of Magdus Chalk plus a $250 gift card from Rungney. There aren't that many people entered. Go win this stuff. You can check out all of Amity's fantastic posts about Cobra Crack and so much more over on her Insta at Amity.warm. And you can follow along with me on Instagram as well as YouTube at The Struggle Climbing Show. Huge, huge thanks and appreciation to our show sponsors who have brought you this episode at zero cost. I'm talking about Shared Air, Scarpa, and Rodeo Resole. Y'all are so awesome. Guys, check your show notes for links and special discounts from those guys that are only available to you, the Struggle listener. The Struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation. Awesome. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin, and The Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. I hope your training and climbing are going great. Have an awesome day, and I will see you soon.